Well, good morning, First Baptist. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. That's everything that's transpired since I was last here, which was the last Sunday of uh, October. We were uh, sharing together on uh, the MARBC's Day of Prayer, and uh, we had a, a great Sunday together as uh, we shared, and uh, it's good to be back with you. Um, trust that you've survived all the different things that have gone on since I was here last to now. You look pretty good for being the uh, third Sunday of January, and it's our joy to be here with you today. Um, I'm a little nervous now when I know that uh, you get a thumbs up or a thumbs down. I didn't know that when I was here last time, so now I'm going to really have to, to pay attention this morning. Appreciate what we just sang. We're going to actually be in Philippians chapter 2 if you want to find your way there this morning. I actually kind of did a shift this week. I was planning to continue a thought process that I started back in October, and Lord willing, we'll be doing that in a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm supposed to be back uh, the first Sunday of, uh, of February. Next week, my good friend, good buddy Maynard is going to be here, correct? Uh, Maynard Bell will be back, and uh, he'll share. He'll correct everything that I messed up today, and uh, then I'll be back to correct... Uh, maybe a couple things that he messes up next week, but we so appreciate Maynard and Ann, and I'm glad that uh, they've had opportunities to be here with you somewhat regularly over the past uh, a few months, and uh, I know you'll be glad to have them here uh, with you next Sunday. want to uh, talk today about our focus as uh, believers in Jesus Christ, and I actually printed out an outline so you could follow along today if you didn't get one. I don't know if they still have some in the back, but uh, you raise your hand if you'd like an outline. Uh, they are poised and ready to bring you one this morning. Don't be too worried about the fact that it covers both sides of the page. We'll get through it, I think, in a fairly decent amount of time. But I just want to think with you for a few moments, actually kind of bouncing off of what we just experienced during the Christmas season, because... Um, if we're not careful as believers and as, and as a as a local church, we we tend to, in many ways, um, mimic society. We mimic our culture, and that isn't always necessarily a bad thing. We're called to, like Christ, when He came to the earth, we're to uh, engage with our culture, and we'll certainly focus on that towards the end of the message this morning. But too often we approach different situations and events in life like the culture does rather than looking at things through a biblical lens. And one of my pet peeves over the years, even as a pastor has been, and I've had to fight this because when you get towards the holiday season, that kind of a corridor of time between Thanksgiving to New Year's, uh, everything just tends to be pushed with a pause button. And uh, that's true about church ministry. I, I always... Uh, kind of cringe when I knew that Thanksgiving to New Year's was coming because in church ministry it seems like everything normal was put on hold and everything was focused upon the all the wrong things regarding the Christmas season. You know, we we have a world that celebrates what we could call secular Christmas, right? And um, 
You barely get past my birthday, which is the three-month point before Christmas, September 25th. I always used to remind my parents on my birthday when I was finishing opening my presents. Now, don't forget, three months from today, we get to do this only in a larger scale, you know. And my birthday, September 25th, was the official start of the Christmas shopping season. That is before all the stores started doing that. And it seems like whenever you go to a store, even in late August, already they're starting to pull out all the Christmas stuff. If we're not careful, our mindset becomes secularized when it comes to the significance of these quote-unquote holiday events like Thanksgiving, which now Thanksgiving's kind of masked over by this whole Black Friday thing, which becomes Black Thursday and whatever you want to call it. Cyber Monday follows right after that. Now Cyber Monday seems to be overshadowing anything that happens the previous weekend. And so all these things are the secularized versions of things that originally and at its base is supposed to focus on a very unique biblical spiritual principle. And that's true really in regards to Christmas. Uh, we were with my daughter and her family uh, just prior to the holidays. Uh, actually, we were there about a week or so early because my daughter was going to have uh, uh, some minor surgery, which meant that she would not be able... She was under a lift restriction, which meant that she could not lift our, at that point, two-and-a-half-month-old uh, fifth uh, grandchild that I mentioned uh, when I was here that had just been born when I was here the last time. And uh, nor could she lift the 17-month-old who was wondering at this point in time, what has invaded our house? Why does it seem like our mom pays more attention now to this, whatever this is, that's invaded our house in October, and she's not paying attention to me? So she couldn't, our daughter couldn't lift Emmeline, who was 17 months at the time, nor could she lift Camille. Someone had to go lift the baby out of the crib or to, to bring her so mommy could feed her and whatever. So we took some vacation time so we could be there to be extra arms and hands to take help take care of the five grandkids. So Papa, as I'm cold, told, called, was sent to on an errand to a store. And it happened to be one of the big box stores that you would all recognize. Uh, I hit the bullseye and I got there and I was doing my shopping. Okay, eight days before Christmas, and I'm going down aisles, and they already have Valentine's stuff out. And I'm thinking, you can't even wait until December 25th and you're doing this. And I asked for the store manager. I was just going to rebuke them for, you know, just already moving on. No, I didn't do that, but that's what I thought. Why do we have to rush? And if we're not careful, we do that as believers. Okay, so here we are, January 21st, less than a month from Christmas. And all the celebration, the pomp and circumstance that's a part of Christmas. And if we're not careful, we've already just fast-forwarded past that as a church, and we're on to other things. And I would say to you, based upon even how we worship this morning, and uh, the last song especially sets it up for what we're looking at today, that if we rush past the emphasis that we supposedly celebrated as believers in Christ, as we didn't emphasize secular Christmas, but biblical Christmas, we're missing the point of why we're even here today. 
That's why I thought it'd be good this morning before secular Christmas becomes even a more fuzzy thing to us and the realities of biblical Christmas tend to also fade away from the scene that we'd spend some time in Philippians chapter 2 today. So join me please as I read from Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 5. Wonderful passage. Um, Actually um, some believe that this is something that the early church used even uh, in its hymnology to especially reflect on some of the parts that we actually remembered as we were uh, singing the last worship song together this morning. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind, have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'll never forget the first time I uh, traversed in this path of discovering Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. I was uh, a new believer. I was a freshman in college at Cedarville. I was preparing to study for medicine And I was in a Bible class and came across this passage as a part of an assignment that I was given. And I was just fascinated by what this said. I obviously at that point had come to terms with my own sinfulness and I understood the glories of God's grace through Jesus Christ. But to to hear about it and to read about it in the pages of Scripture in such a a specific and graphic format, as we've just read from Philippians 2, really, really causes us to once again be amazed at a Savior who would do what he has done. And really, Philippians 2 is is a Christmas hymn of celebration that takes us right through to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which we'll celebrate in just a couple short months. And if we're not careful, we'll celebrate secular Easter and do the same things we do at Christmas time. And this is a text, this is a narrative about what Christ has done that reminds you and me, as followers of Jesus Christ, why he is so eternally dear and special to us. I've tried to paint for us this morning the epic disappointment that is ours if we as a church gloss over or just pass by events like Christmas or Resurrection Sunday as if they're just something that is momentarily celebrated in any given year and then they're just forgotten. And we put away all of the ornaments of our theology of understanding what who Christ is and 
why he has done what he's done, and we put him in a back closet until it's convenient for us to bring all of those tokens back out again. I'd like to describe it this way. Actually, a friend of mine wrote something a few months ago, and I'm on his mailing email list for this, and he was talking about epic disappointments. He said, imagine that you're getting ready for the big game. I don't know what the big game is around here. Is it Central and Western? I know what, I live in Grand Rapids, so uh, in the media down there, it seems like Western Central, as they would call it, they put Western first down there. But Western and Central or Central and Western seems to be a big deal for football. I don't know if it is for basketball. You know, I, I grew up in another state, and I won't try to say it because I don't want to thumbs down right now, but there is the game, and I mean, it's the big game, and it happens to involve a school in this state. And I mean, when anyone mentions the game, Everyone knows. I mean, I know we've got a game coming up in a couple of weeks, and I'm really excited because uh, one of our one um, uh, a brother in Christ who's a member of one of our regular Baptist churches is in the NFC Championship uh, game today, and graduated from Michigan Tech, and uh, is a member of one of the churches about uh, probably about. 45 minutes north of Grand Rapids, and he's a lineman for the Vikings, and, uh, uh, you know, they had that great, uh, unbelievable win last week, and uh, so I'm excited about the big game, which, by the way, you can't use the S word because it's trademarked, so if you notice that certain advertisers will say, are you getting ready for the big game? It's because they haven't paid the rights to be able to use the word stupendous or whatever that bowl is that's going to be held in two weeks because I haven't paid them to say the word either. Okay, it's super, all right? I just won't use the last word so I don't get sued by the NFL. But but anyway, the game for us is the big game. And so imagine you're getting ready for the big game and, 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 it, and you're the home team and uh, the team comes out on the field, but before they come out on the field, the marching bands come out. I don't know what they do here. But, I mean, it's a big deal for the big game. And the band comes out, they march, they play the fight song, right? I, I've read, I don't know if this is true, how many of you are Central students or Central fans? Any of you? Okay. All right, there's a few. So what are the rest of you? You live in Mount Pleasant. Come on, get with it. But I've, I've heard that during the game, do you do this? You shake the keys. I don't have any keys on here, so I can't really, can't really make much noise. But you shake the keys you want to rally the team, but let's imagine Central comes out and the, to- the coin toss is done and, and we lost the toy- coin toss. I'm, I'm calling myself a Chippewa this morning, okay? You may, you may vote me out in a little bit with a thumbs down, but I'm a Chippewa fan right now. So here we are, and we lose the toss, so Western wins, okay? And they defer to the second half, so we're going to get a kickoff. The ball's coming to us, and so they, they kick off, it's kicking into the end zone. Uh, our returner decides he's going to take a knee in the end zone. So the team comes out, they take the ball, uh, the, the ball is placed, and our team gets in the huddle. And they're in the offensive huddle, and, and, and they're there. The defense, they clap their hands, they come out, and they get lined up, and they wait for our offense to come to the line. And they wait. And the referee blows his whistle and he winds to get the clock started. And we're watching the play clock and it winds down to 10 to 5. And we're saying, hurry up, hurry up, get out of the huddle. And they don't get out of the huddle. The referee blows his whistle, he throws the flag. March the team back. Team huddle kind of moves back. And the play clock starts. And they don't come out of the huddle. Referee blows his whistle, throws the flag. They back up more. And they never come out of the huddle. 
If I paid ticket, paid for tickets to that game, and if I dressed up in all of my uh, maroon and gold, by the way, those were my high school colors. I was a Northeastern Jet, and for some reason we chose maroon and gold. So I'm with you on that. And uh, I could have worn some of that today, only I don't fit into it anymore. And so here we are, and we're ready. But they won't go on offense. And we are disappointed. Our cheering turns soon to booing because our team won't get engaged in the game. And that's the dilemma at Christmas time. Where we become so intoxicated by secular Christmas and all the things that are part of it, to the point that it's so syrupy sweet in all kinds of weird ways that we just forget the mind of Christ. Let this mind have this attitude. The same attitude. The same perspective. That is Jesus. We live in a world that for many, many people, probably billions of people, the only thing they know about Christmas is the secular story. And sadly, a big reason for that is that a team who has been well-equipped given the greatest playbook that could ever be received, is unwilling to clap out of the huddle and go to the line and call the play and snap the ball and get engaged in the game of life. The Apostle Paul says, you need to have this attitude You need to be Christ-like. Here's how Christ handled his time as the incarnate Son of God on this earth. He was selfless. It's interesting, in this text that we've read, there are, there's a kind of a, there's kind of an ebb and flow to what Paul is talking about. And he starts out talking about the glory of Christ in his human form, which is kind of a strange thing because we all know what it's like to be encased and entombed in human flesh. And Jesus did that. He came and he was willing to be entombed as God in human flesh. And we, we understand that he did that for the glory of the Father. And there's all kinds of glory that's talked about here. And, and when it talks about Christ's likeness here, What was Christ like when he came to this earth? He was selfless. There's this glory of selflessness that is a part of Christ. It says here that who is Christ Jesus, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He forfeited his rights because he's God. And he comes to this earth and he was willing to not... Let being God keep him from his assignment. He forfeited his rights. I mean, everyone who encountered him on earth didn't know that he's the son of God. 
Very few hung around long enough to understand who this man, Jesus Christ, is. He forfeited his, his rights. He forfeited his reputation. It says, he took upon him the form of a servant. He's, he's, he's not now in the state that he was before. He forfeited his reputation in that regard. He, he adds to his godness humanity, which, by the way, is not a subtraction. He didn't subtract something so that he could become man. He added to his godness his humanness. He added. He was willing to add this dimension so that he could relate to you and me, so that he could identify with you and me. He was willing to forfeit his riches. This is all part of who we're to emulate. He forfeited riches in order so he could be our representative. When you look at this um, this picture, when it says here in verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of, of a servant. It's a word that my son-in-law would like very well. It's the Greek word from which we get the word schematics. My, my son-in-law is an engineer and you do these schematic drawings to represent something that you're going to design in great detail. And the schematic is to give a picture for everyone of what the end product will look like. Jesus came. He came it, with the glory of selflessness, and he forfeited his riches to become human. And in his humanness, he shows us, he gives the schematic to you and me of what it means to be Christ-like, what it means to live in a world that's ungodly, but you and I can be godly because we're in Christ, and we're able to follow him and follow him as our Representative, because when it says that he's made in the form of servants uh, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, the word there is not singular that he became in the form of a man, but it says there that he became in the form plural of of, of mankind, of humankind. Jesus becomes the representative of the entire human race. He's willing to identify with every person who has ever lived and will live because he was willing to be selfless. And the apostle, as he writes to the church, as he writes to believers, he says, if you're going to truly understand the emphasis of why Jesus came, which we celebrate at Christmas, why he died and rose again, which is what we celebrate in in just a few weeks from now, as we celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection. You understand, you need to understand the glory of what it means to be selfless. (laughs) This was a quote I read uh, leading up to the Christmas season this year that I think really puts it all in perspective. A thousand times in history, a baby has become a king. But only once in history did a king become a baby. And that's what Jesus did when he was willing to glorify his father by being selfless and being made in the form and likeness of you and me so that he could identify with us. That's the glory of selflessness. We also see here in this text that Paul shares with us about this glory of Christ, the glory of servanthood, because we read beginning in verse 8. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There's this whole issue of what it means to be a servant. That's what Jesus became. He became a servant. So Paul emphasizes the glory of servanthood here. He talks about the fact that that Jesus came to follow orders. He came to follow orders. Um, uh, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia passed away a couple of years ago. He used to love to tell the story about when he was uh, a student in uh, the university at Georgetown. And he was a history major. And um, before you could graduate from Georgetown as an underclassman, you had to uh, sit before a panel of three professors and you had to do this oral exam. And so his was in history. And so he's sitting with uh, two other professors and the chairman of the history department. And um, he said that the, the oral exam's going great. And finally, you get to the last question. And um, Dr. Wilkinson, who happened to be the chair of the department, looks at uh, Antonin and he says, I have one final question for you. And he says, he said, here's my question. What is the most important event in human history? And Scalia used to like to laugh and say, you know, I thought, oh, wow, what a softball question. And he said, so I gave my answer and I gave it eloquently. And I thought, wow, they're going to be so impressed. And this uh, chairman of the department looked back at me and said, "Um, Mr. Scalia, you are wrong. The greatest event in human history was the incarnation. When Christ became a man, Mr. Scalia, that is the correct answer. And Scalia would share, that man was right. He was right. There can't be any greater event than when God was willing to send his son and be encased and entombed in human flesh so that God could completely identify with you and me in all aspects of who we are and so that he could qualify as the Lamb of God to be slain for sinners and to bear the weight of the sin of the world. It's an amazing thing. That's a Supreme Court justice who's sharing that testimony. And every person, whether they are well-known and renowned for their wisdom or their ability to make decisions, or the most common person on earth, when they look at Jesus, even as we worship together prior to this message, when you look at Jesus, if you're truly looking at him, you can't miss the fact that here is the ultimate servant who was willing to follow the orders of his father, who sent him to be the savior of the world. And we identify with him in that. I mean, here is, here is uh, the way that God looks at it. God, from his perspective, sees his son, the son of God, now clothed in humanity. From our perspective, we see here, here, is, here is one of us. He's just like us. He identifies with us. He takes upon him the form of a servant. And in the ultimate sense, connects with us. But there's another aspect to the glory that Paul talks about here. 
before we get to our conclusion, and it's this. There's the glory of satisfaction. Now, don't don't miss this because this is kind of the hinge point. This is the hinge on the door that's going to open up, I believe, why the Spirit of God directed the Apostle Paul to pen what he did to those believers in Philippi. It pleased the Son to come and to fulfill the will of the Father because he understood that by fulfilling the will of the Father, it would please his Father. It did please the Father because we read in these wonderful verses that we sang about earlier in verses 9 through 11 that God highly exalted him, we're told in verse 9, has given him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, Jehovah saves, every knee should bow in heaven. All the angelic beings on earth those who created in the likeness of God, you and I, under the earth, even those who are the condemned of God, everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There is this satisfaction that comes with fulfilling the mission, fulfilling the expectations that are placed upon us. God put his stamp of approval, his mark of approval upon his son. God said, this is very good. I am pleased. And the name Jesus will be exalted above everything and everyone for all eternity. Don't miss that, church. Don't miss that point, O you who bear the image of God. Because often we are guilty of cutting off our understanding of what Paul has just declared by stopping at verse 11. And I think that does great disservice and injustice to this text. Because if you notice, grammarians, in verse 12, there is this word, therefore. In other words, I've been building up to a crescendo because here comes a very important application. And if we just take verses 5 through 11, which I have to admit that I've done many times in my life because it is such a glorious passage, if I miss the point of what has been shared, it's just like going through a Christmas season just saying I'm going to be so glad when I don't have to listen to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Or jingle bells one more time. We have allowed our enemy to mask what is to be the glories and splendors of not just Christmas Day, but every day in its reality for you and me. Because frankly, today is a day to celebrate Christmas, right? I mean, it's just like we call this the Lord's Day and, and it's the first day of the week because this is the day Jesus resurrected. So every day, every day is a resurrection day for us. Because we know in whom we have believed. We're persuaded he's able to keep that which he's committed unto him against that day. And every day is Christmas. Every day is a day for us to relish in the fact and to rejoice in the fact that God sent his son to be the savior of the world. And we are living examples of that. Therefore, verse 12, 
my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not just when I'm around you, but even more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Remember why Jesus came. Don't just be awestruck by the realities of what Jesus has accomplished, but recognize his example to you and to me who now go out as ambassadors to represent him in a lost of dying, uh, in a lost and dying world. Be like-minded. Recognize the fact that glorifying God is tied to the cross. Glorifying God is tied to the manger. We are celebrating what God has done. And going back to the, to the, the horrendous disappointment that we would have if our team came out on the field and all they did is stay in the huddle. That's an epic disappointment. But too often we tend to stay satisfied in our holy huddles. Church, that's not what God has called us to. That's not why Jesus came. That's not why he has redeemed you. He's redeemed you. He's redeemed me. He's redeemed us as a body of believers to be out on offense. Too often all we do is is study the defensive playbook. Here's how we defend our faith. But do you realize that our faith is worth sharing? The, The reality of our faith, the person who is the makeup of our faith, is someone that we should be declaring every single day. But it's sad that most studies show that the more people stay in church, the less likely they are to share their faith. And we think, well, if we'll have the strategy, if we will find the right pastor who will help us get people to come in here, we'll grow. Guess what? Statistics show people are increasingly less likely to come to a church building than ever before. That really was never God's intention to begin with. We are to go, right? In that Matthew 28, go into all the world, making disciples as we go. We are to begin, Acts 1-8, in our Jerusalem, and then into Judea and Samaria around us to the ends of the earth and declare the glories of His grace. Somehow we've thought, if you build it, they will come. And on Occasion they have, but frankly, when you trace church history over almost 21 centuries, you find that's not really the way it's done. The way that people know about Jesus is when the church gets out of its holy huddle and is on offense. When you study the life of Christ, you find that 92% of his activities in the four Gospels are not time spent in the synagogue. He often started there, as did the apostles. But most of his time was hitting the streets and encountering people where they lived. If we're to be Christ-minded and like-minded with him, I think probably we ought to pay attention to the way in which he lived his life. If we're going to have his mindset and his attitude that Paul talks about here in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus didn't come to be a tourist. He didn't think, wow, wouldn't it be great, Father, if I could get into human flesh and just kind of go around and see what it's like to live on that earth as if God would have to know that? 
Do you think God had to know what it was like to be a human being? No, he created us. He came to identify with us. He came for our benefit so that we would understand that God cares for us. God understands everything about us to the point that he's willing to identify with us even to bear our sin and conquer sin and death by raising him victoriously from the grave. This message could be as easily preached the Sunday or two after Resurrection Sunday as it could be just a few weeks removed from Christmas Because it's the everyday reality for us that this is our message. It's Jesus Christ and modeling him. So, what did Jesus do? Let's just think of it briefly as we conclude today. We're going to land the plane in just a couple of minutes. How did Jesus, in his incarnate form, minister? Jesus entered the culture. He came, as uh, we're told in Galatians, in the fullness of time. God orchestrated everything together so at the very specific time, Jesus would be born of a virgin and born under the law. He came at a time where there was a language known as Koine Greek that was a common street language. He didn't come to be highfalutin, as we used to call it. He didn't come so that it could just be an academic, uh, uh, a PhD-level performance. He came so that he could identify with everyone. He entered the culture. His stories, his parables, his illustrations, all related to everyday life. He, it didn't matter if you were a, a religious ruler or a down and outer, a sinner among, uh, uh, the greatest sinner among sinners. He was willing to interact with you. And wherever Jesus went, no matter what his illustration was, he went for the heart. He didn't spend a lot of time talking about the, the, the big bowl game coming up. He didn't talk about a lot of things relating, relating to the weather or politics or whatever we like to use as our kind of our entry point. It didn't take long for Jesus to get to the heart of the matter. If you study the Gospel of John, it's, a, it's just a, a masterful illustration of how Jesus interacts with people. Read chapters 3 through 6 especially. I mean, he starts with someone who's the uh, religious elite. The next thing you know, he's talking to uh, a common street person, prostitute. Next thing you know, he talks to someone who's lame and can't do anything on their own. And in every single one of those situations, Jesus cuts through all, all the junk that they try to throw up to him, and he goes for their hearts. He started small. I mean, one of the songs we sing right at Christmas time is, O Little Town of Bethlehem. He comes in obscurity, he doesn't come with pomp and circumstance and angels singing to the whole world. So the whole world says, what's going on here? He's introduced to shepherds. He has to move for a while to Egypt with his parents because of the threat of his own death. He ends up growing up for most of his time on this earth in obscurity in a place called Nazareth so that when he's out beginning to preach uh, the glories of, of God's kingdom, someone says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He started small. His main followers were people who were the rejects of society. By the way, that's still true for the most part. But whoever he encountered... He left them with hope. He gave them hope. And that's something convicting to us, church. 
because many of us would have to be honest and say we're guilty of already boxing up Christmas and putting it on the shelf till next year. We're all too guilty of boxing up all these things that we've allowed our society to secularize and say this is just another event among many hurdles and hoops that you jump through in a common average calendar year. When God says, I've given you an epic opportunity. And so, let's remember, Jesus never told us to stay in a huddle. Instead, he told us to join us on his mission. I've given several scriptural uh, illustrations here that you can look up later to follow through. But the key point that I want us to remember today is we leave this building and go out into a Mount Pleasant world that is not just colored maroon and gold, but is colored in all kinds of shades and pastels, and some of the colors and hues are rather ugly because of our sinfulness. He says, I'm the light of the world, and I've designed you, believer, to reflect that light to the people around you. You are the salt of the earth. You're to go out, and you're to season life in a way that helps people understand what a relationship with God is like and how it is eternally palatable because of what I have accomplished on your behalf. Never forget my glory. Never forget that it's yours just to hold in a little ball and to put up on a shelf to pull out every once in a while and, and to be amazed at how it sparkles. But instead, it's it. I am and I have called you to represent me to a world that is so dark that it can't find its way to its next step. But I've given you the light, and you are the light reflected from me to go out into the world on offense to declare my glory. Let's get to, let's get to the work, right? Let's get to business. Let's do what Jesus has called us to do. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity today to be reminded of why we can celebrate every day of our lives, every day of our existence, the glories of God's grace and Christ and why what Paul has shared in Philippians 2 is so appropriate and so important to us as we leave this building this morning and seek to honor you by the way in which we walk with you this day, not just as individuals, but as we march as a body of believers going out on offense, breaking out of our holy huddle and declaring the glories of, of God's grace through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May our appreciation for you, Lord Jesus, may our, uh, the joy of even uttering your name, Jesus, may it thrill our hearts that we've been given the wonderful privilege of going out as ambassadors of Christ to share you with those who are lost. And may that be our passion as we leave this place as your church to engage with our culture, to go to the heart, to recognize it doesn't matter who we are. We start small, just like Jesus. But our goal is to give eternal hope by pointing people to Jesus.
That's our prayer, Lord, that we pray in your name and for your glory. Amen.